this is fascinating about immigration, but a person could have a U.S. citizen status and not have documentation to prove it. The next thing is they would have to go apply for a certificate of citizenship to establish their citizen or and or a passport. So a, per, a parent's status definitely affects the kid's status. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome Ruby Powers to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Ruby is the founder of Powers Law Group PC, a Houston-based full-service immigration law firm. She's board certified in immigration and nationality law. Ruby authored the AILA's Build and Manage Your Successful Immigration Law Practice Without Losing Your Mind, and recently began providing law practice management consulting services. She's a graduate of the University of North Carolina School of Law, Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses, Leadership Houston, and American Leadership Forum. She's also run for public office. Ruby has lived and studied in Belgium, Mexico, Turkey, Spain, and the United Arab Emirates, and she speaks Spanish, French, and a little Turkish. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, as you listed a lot of different things that might be like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, basically, my mom was born to American missionaries in Mexico. So I grew up um, some of my summers um, in, in Mexico and just saw the difference between the two countries as I traversed back and forth from the border. So that's really, um, and having family from all over the world, that really is what got me excited and interested in immigration. Um, I later was exchange student to Belgium, learned and traveled around the world, made friends um, all over, still in touch with. And, you know, I, I wanted to do something in international relations, human rights, political science and business. And here I am running an immigration law firm, being an advocate, uh, writing book, um, helping others guide them through the path of their immigration journey or even with their law practice management. So that's a little bit uh, about myself. So how did you land in the United Arab Emirates? (laughs) Well, in 2011, after I had just given birth to my firstborn child, uh, it was the Arab Spring. Uh, My husband was getting a little, let's just say, um, I don't know. I think he wanted change. So, so he was wanting to change work. And I was like, you know, I don't want to move to another state. We're going to go out. We're going to, we need to make it worth it. Let's just go halfway around the world. Um, and so he had got a consulting gig in Dubai. And I was like, you know, this is interesting. You know, I kept hearing it was like the Disneyland of the Middle East and or something like that. So definitely um, culturally uh, a change, but I have lived in UAE and Turkey. So I have lived in the Middle East a couple, you know, total, maybe almost two years or more. But um, I was a mommy by day um, until about 2 p.m. over there. And then I was attorney by night uh, when the U.S. would finally wake up and I could conduct business. So in 2011, I was running my law firm remotely. Uh, I'm joking now, before it was cool to run your firm remotely. So uh, back <laughs> In the tech of a decade ago. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. So you didn't ever have to make in-person appearances even back then, pre-COVID? I hired uh, my friends as contractors to attend interviews. Uh, They did allow telephonic hearings 
Um, and so I once had a phone call at like my midnight and the judge was like, where are you? Um, so I mean, I made it work. I did have to shift my practice to be, um, less interview and court focused, but, um, there's a lot of practices that are like that anyway, but, uh, I, I was leveraging Skype and phone consultations and I had a phone number that was local number. So many of my clients, you know, it wasn't international phone calls or anything. And they, I was doing Skype and video. I mean, I guess before we all realized what Zoom was. And, and that was pretty a great way to build a connection with my clients and rapport and get the job done. I love that. I may need to look into that someday. <laughs> so far, my I've lived in the exciting places of the Dallas area, Lubbock, and Austin. I have not ventured too far, although I have traveled quite a bit. So maybe someday. That's good. <laughs> so how would you describe your current practice? So I have a full service immigration law practice. Sometimes I feel like I'm running five businesses within one because we do a family-based immigration. So that's basically people getting petitions and green cards and such based on family. I also do asylum, which is its own like niche within immigration, um, helping those who are fleeing their home country and um, meeting the burdens of being protected here. I also do immigration court and removal defense. Usually it's because someone either was not in status uh, or had a petition that was filed and denied, or maybe someone was encountered with a criminal record or something that gets them or entered um, without inspection or got put in court at the border. So we do that. And then I also have employment-based immigration. So you're thinking like H visas, L's, um, and also investment-based immigration. So like E2s um, and things like that for small businesses who are wanting to, to come here, as well as naturalization. So someone who had their green card or legal permanent residency for a really long time and or, or short time, <laughs> you know, shortest time is three to five years and are finally becoming a citizen. So I've been doing that a lot recently as people want the power to vote and have more of a permanency here in the country. So um, when I say full service, we do all things within immigration. And um, I've been uh, practicing 13 years and my firm is 12 years old just just recently. So today we're here to kind of talk about the the intersection between family law and immigration, since our podcast generally targets family law attorneys. What are some key issues that family law lawyers should be aware of with respect to immigration? Okay, so I I came up with about four that came to mind right away when uh, I, I was thinking about this topic, because I know everybody, we have our specialties, and so What are some of the things that you just need to know, maybe some bare minimum to keep in mind? So one of my first points is marriage can disqualify someone from an immigration petition. For example, if a legal permanent resident petitions for their um, 21 and up unmarried child and that child later marries, a lot of the terminology with immigration is a person is no longer a child once they marry. So marriage could disqualify somebody. Um, for something. I've always wondered why some of my clients never legally marry like at all. And I don't know if it's because of this like lore of, 
if you marry, it'll, you know, screw up your chances of getting a green card or something. I don't know, because like for some people, it is a long wait, but I think it might just be because they just, they're, they're common law in, in their mind and are not officially registered or something, which anyway, so marriage can disqualify someone from a petition, but um, for the most part, um, so that's just one thing to consider. The other thing um, that I see in inter well, it's a little bit of an intersection, but it's just a point that I think is important is that immigration's always trying to figure out if there's marriage fraud. That's just, you know, if you ever watched that, was it Green Card with Gerard Depardieu, uh, you know, back in, that was the old one. And then there was the other one, the proposal and things like that. But basically the movies, everything's pretty much wrong with those movies as a factually, but um, that's what people think is what's happening. But for the most part, um, USCIS is trying to interview individuals. And when they go for a green card based off of marriage, legal permanent residency, they're trying to see, do they commingle funds? Do they live together? Do, um, you, you know, sometimes they'll say, bring out your key. And they're trying to see if the key is the same. They want to see taxes. They want to see, um, and, and people need to do their taxes married joint or married separate. But they, if you do head of household and you shouldn't have done them, then that's a problem. Um, so marriage fraud is a really big thing that we're we're concerned about. But that's really more about, um, you know, living the life of what USCS perceives as a married couple. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing that was wonderful is if several years ago when, when same-sex marriage was deemed... Um, valid in terms of federal law. So then that, that was, that was great because I've been practicing at a time when that wasn't um, deemed valid enough to petition for your, um, your spouse. Um, another thing to note, my third point that I thought about is that, you know, divorce can someone can sometimes make someone eligible for a petition in some cases. So just like a marriage could disqualify you for a petition, if you later get divorced, maybe you then are eligible because you're unmarried. And, and so really, you know, basically your marital status can affect your immigration status. That's the bottom line in this answer. And then the fourth idea is about Violence Against Women Act, um, which is not just for women. It's for men as well. But basically, the biggest thing is like if, if there was a couple in a relationship and one was abusive, the, the American or legal permanent resident, the immigrant could potentially qualify for a green card based off of that, that abuse and the real valid marriage, living together and all that, as long as they apply within either while they're married um, and separated, obviously, or within two years of divorce. So some people don't realize that they're just what I've found. And I'm sure you all listening and, you know, all, you know, is that people are just so emotionally engaged in the, the separation of and of that and the divorce process that they're not maybe thinking about their immigration status. And so I think that's why USCIS gave people that two-year lead time. But basically after two years um, and you met that qualification, but you're over two years, very, very rarely can you overcome that. Um, and so that's something to consider. So those are um, different ways that, you know, I see an intersection between immigration and, and family. And, and then the other little wild card is what, are we one of like, is it six or eight? I don't know how many states that we have common law marriage. And so the federal government really, I, I don't think they like federal, they don't like common law marriage because it's so, you know, funky. They don't have proof of it. So usually when somebody says they've been 
they've been living together. They're calling themselves out as married. I usually have them and we want them to be married. <laughs> um, we have them go register their common law and backdate it to when they said that they've been living and, to, and in that position. So, um, and that sometimes we've done that a few times where that was really beneficial for their case. So it sounded like when you were going through the list of things they look at on marriage fraud, that that would be similar to the things that you're trying to prove when you're proving a common law marriage. Yeah, that's, that's true. I don't really have to, you know, approve common law marriages, mostly, um, that, that often, usually it's, if I had to do it, it's because I wanted to establish that that person was, uh, a qualifying relative for a waiver, I might be a little too technical here, but sometimes um, having a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident spouse allows you to be eligible for a waiver. So like if a person has a crime or they lied to the government or something like that, or they overstayed, they need um, a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident spouse or parent to overcome um, that waiver. And so that's why sometimes they might have been living with someone, but they call themselves out as married, but they weren't really like legally like had a piece of paper so then that's like we're like no go go come on go go register that already was like <laughs> there's I mean it's sort of funny like I'm an immigration attorney but I feel like sometimes it'll be a given day I'll be telling people go get divorced because then you can go do this or this or go get married like why haven't you gotten married yet like you've been, <laughs> you've been together 20 years and now you you know like I I have a U visa case of uh, you're a victim of a crime and this couple have been together for like 20 something years. And if, if they're legally married one, I only have to pay, pay for one petition and the other one gets to join in. Otherwise I have to do two twice as much work and they have to pay twice as much. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so in doing a lot of divorces, um, I normally have thought divorce is going to be bad for somebody's immigration status or that they're mm-hmm. jeopardizing somebody's going to get deported or somebody's going to lose their immigration status by virtue of divorce. Is that a valid concern? Yes, it is. And that's, um, and that's, you know, one of the questions that uh, family law attorneys should be talking with their clients is, you know, is your status dependent on marriage? So, for example, an E2, like an investor visa or E1, um, e, yeah, basically one E2, those are investment treaty trader, trader visas. The spouse gets the visa only based off of marriage. So if the moment the marriage is dissolved or no longer valid, boom, you don't have that visa, dependent visa. Another one, H1B, you know, you hear that in the news a lot. Their spouse is called an H4 as soon as the if there's a divorce, the H-4 doesn't have a visa. There's also um, like student visa. There's the F-1 for the student and the F-2 for the spouse and, and or even the L visa. So, so you're right. If you're a legal permanent resident and it was within, so if you're a U.S. citizen, we, we don't, we don't really care, right? It doesn't matter. But if you're a legal permanent resident, the question might be, well, do you have a conditional green card? So the, the general progression is you first you get the marriage-based green card. And if you've been married less than two years at that first marriage-based green card interview, then you'll get a two-year conditional one. If you've been married over two years, you get the 10-year green card. So whether you're staying married or not really doesn't matter. That's really their threshold, threshold of figuring out whether it's fraudulent or not, if you've made the two-year mark. So 
Um, that even if you um, get divorced and you have a conditional green card, you can still be fine as long as you prove it was a real marriage. So it's really not that bad of a deal. But really, it's more of an issue when you have one of these other like um, student work investment visas. That's really when it's more cause concern. And you would want to be strategic as to what other visa could you start moving yourself over to if you wanted to stay in the country. And I know that can make things super crazy with like child custody matters and where do people plan to live and things like insurance and all that stuff. So you're right. If we have a couple that's divorcing and they are here on visas related to, let's say that the husband has a visa to work here and the wife has a visa tied to him, but this does not allow her to work here. Mm -hmm. What should we, if we represent the wife, what should we be advising her to do so that she's not going to lose her legal status as soon as she gets divorced? And so she'll be able to support herself. Well, so on, and the reality is there's not a ton of different visas that accommodate all different scenarios. So I think the hint that something's going on, they should go talk to an immigration attorney and see where, where we, what maybe we can make a plan A, B, you know, to strike a transition. Um, what, what sometimes might be is like move over to student to buy some time and, and then may, or maybe just, because like, for example, if you talk about H1B, which is like the one most people talk about, you know, you're subject to the cap, which opens up only once a year, and then you can't start work until October. And then if you're not subject to the cap, no matter what, you have to be offered a job. And someone wants to have to get, you know, and of course, right now in the labor shortage, you know, it's probably easier, but when times are not so good, the people don't, companies don't want to offer as many positions. Maybe they're eligible for an E2 and do an investment on their own and they can work with their business. But basically, I would say in that moment, have a consult and plan a very far ahead if you possibly can, because USCIS is not fast. Like things are taking a really long time. They're trying really hard, I think, to get faster. But like just for example, if somebody were to switch from like, let's say an H4, their spouse was an H1B, they're about to get divorced or something and they need to get out of H4 dependent visa and we were just trying to move them to a, a tourist just just to do something that tourist visa change is taking like 18 16 months wow and meanwhile we have case family yeah. law cases where they're going to dismiss you if you're not set for trial in 6 months yeah so so you might we might have to have send the person abroad to switch them to another status you know so just know that things are not fast and um, and you need, we need to have time to strategize and consulates are not running at full speed. So some of them are not even having appointments. They're only having for certain visa types, you know, because of COVID. I mean, a lot of the foreign service were pulled back home during COVID. They were short staffed after Trump administration. And, um, you know, it's slowly trying to pick up and it's not uh, uniform across the world as to which ones. So that being said, because you can usually do your change of status here in the country, or you can go change it at the consulate. Um, and so those are things to consider. Bottom line, consults, think far in advance if you possibly can. Otherwise, we have backup plans with maybe switch you to tourists and then make a plan <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> so sometimes as family lawyers, we find ourselves with clients either in a divorce or a custody case that have no legal status. 
And there's often concern about, you know, if I go to the courthouse, is somebody going to show up and deport me? What should we be aware of if we find ourselves the client who does not have legal status? I mean, I think that it's just good to send them to have a consult with an immigration attorney just to just knowledge is power. Normally, when things like deferred action for childhood or DACA or other big things came out in the news, people came in droves to have consults, found out they were eligible for stuff, but they've been avoiding like actual legal advice. They've been just surviving off of news and, and telling them, scaring them away. So, I mean, first of all, I'd say have a consult. But I mean, second of all, like under this administration, we haven't heard horror stories of people detained at the courthouses. I know there is a fear. Like I know sometimes immigration forums don't have their offices downtown because people are just afraid of being close to the courthouses. Um, and and I, I understand they get they get their heart races when they see uniforms. I, I get that. But um, there's more of a, a protection under this administration and the ICE priorities um, delineate, you know, we're only going after more recent arrivals, people with crimes and things like that. People who've been here a long time, who have children, who have no crimes, like they are super low on the priority. So I would probably try to give them that feedback and let them know that they they should be fine. Um, You know, really it's more of a concern when a person with no status encounters a border official that might be inside the interior you know, along I-10, for example, or inside, you know, 26 miles inside our border. Like that's more of a concern if you're tra- for, you know, traveling around the U.S. than I think going to the courthouse. So one of the issues you, you touched on this a little bit ago is about what questions family lawyers should be asking their clients about immigration. And I think you mentioned about, you know, what's your current status, right? Yeah. Are there other questions we should be asking? Well, I I think, you know, if you ask them their status and they're a U.S. citizen, you know, no cause for concern, legal permanent resident, was it based on marriage? Um, did you or are you have a conditional green card or a 10 year green card? You know, either way, you'll still be fine. But if you have a conditional card and you're, you're in the process of divorce, that's definitely you should go talk to an immigration attorney to make sure you're preparing and preserving documentation that will help you transition. And then the whole um, is your status dependent on marriage. Um, I mean, I think those are the big hot t- ticket items. You know, another thing could be if any of your children are about to, what their age is, because another point is that when your kids turn 21 and let's say they're on one of these, you know, E, H, F, you know, L, those letters that I mentioned, um, then they're they're no longer, um, you know, a child. So really, a lot of the way USCIS works is if you're over 21, you're not a child. And if you get married, you're not a child. A lot of times it's whichever one comes first, but, you know, I I don't want to say a blanket because sometimes there's different ages that affect different statuses. But so if one of your children is getting, you know, close to 21 and there's no plan to get them a green card, or what are you going to do? Because maybe you're talking about college funds or who's going to live where or whatever, or maybe the family is going to get split because maybe one spouse and a child is going to lose status pretty soon. So those are things to consider. I don't know how detailed you you all want to get into the <laughs> into the immigration side. I mean, I um, you know I think other you know Im- crimes can affect immigration, but I mean your your family law. So um, you know 
So, so we, we have to look at the whole picture um, and immigration to see what person's eligible for can, can move to something else or to retain what they have, or if they're going to have any issues when they're traveling. But, you know, status is, is really important and um, age of, of children. So if people have children, do they automatically get the same legal status as their parents until a certain age or how does that work? Okay. So how a child becomes a U.S. citizen can depend on lots of different things. Like if you're born in the U.S., we have you so lease, right? You're born on the land. Very rarely does that not qualify for you automatic citizenship. A person can be born abroad to one or two American parents and still get U.S. citizenship. They have to, depends on the year the child was born and how much the parents uh, which one of it is the mom or the dad, if they were married or not. So there's a lot, there's like this whole chart we have to look at. Um, and if that parent lived in the U.S. enough to pass on Americanness to their kid, <laughs> I, I kid you not. <laughs> and when it's a dad, you know, they want to double check that that dad has been really involved in the kid's life. And, you know, before the age of 18, it gets a little messy when the dad's name is not on the birth certificate and things like that. Uh, if your child, if they're a legal permanent resident and their children are under 18, um, there's this provision that says if the child is, has a U.S. citizen parent, so let's say the parent naturalized and became a citizen, um, the kid is under 18 and live has a green card and lives in legal physical custody of their parent the parent that just naturalized or became a citizen recently, then that child automatically becomes a U.S. citizen. Um, this was created around, um, I think, like 2002-ish or something like that, because there was a lot of kids that were getting sort of screwed over and uh, parents thought they were okay, the kids were okay, and they weren't. So this is actually, it uh, protects the children. So um, that, that could be an incentive, you know, to keep track of who's about to naturalize is this child going to become a citizen because it can affect the mobility of the child. And as soon as that child, this is fascinating about immigration, but a person could have a U.S. citizen status and not have documentation to prove it. Um, like in that story I was saying about a child, the next thing is they would have to go apply for a certificate of citizenship to establish their citizen or, and, or a passport. So a, per, a parent's status definitely affects the kid's status. Um, and then going to the whole alphabet soup we were talking about earlier, you know, the E's, the H's, F's, L's, things like that. The child predominantly is a child um, as long as they're under 21 and they're the child of, of the parent um, that has the visa. And so, you know, that's why we keep tabs on are they about to age out, what we call it, um, and what do we need to start doing? Because just like we were saying about the spouse who's about to get divorced, like with a child who's about to age out, we have to have a plan usually within a couple of years in advance, which usually might be either they return or we try to push the parent towards getting green card before the kid turns 18 um, or definitely 21, you know, or we're just basic, or they might go back home. You know, the kid might just say, I don't, I don't want to stay here anymore. So we're just about out of time, but one of the questions I like to ask everyone on the podcast is if you could give one piece of advice to young lawyers, what would it be? You know, my immigration law professor said, uh, find somebody who is doing what you want to do, you know, three, five, 
20, 10 years out and ask them what, you know, are you glad you did what you did? Would you do something differently? Um, what, what advice do you have for me? So I think that goes in line with my advice is have a variety of, of good mentors um, that you can call on. Um, different areas of law, maybe non-lawyers, um, people that you can ask for advice um, who guide you along the way when before, you know, just so you have them in line in case you have, when you do need them, because you'll, you'll definitely need them, but, um, and, and cultivate those relationships. Don't, and not just have like a phone call every five or 10 years, you know, but really build that relationship, meet, reach out to them on a regular basis, because then they'll be more invested in you and know you more to be able to give you more um, valid and on point advice. I think it's also super important to cultivate relationships with attorneys that are in other practice areas, especially when we see overlapping issues such as immigration and family. Um, so if you're a family lawyer, you've got to know an immigration lawyer. You've got to know a criminal lawyer. There's probably others. Uh, business lawyer. Definitely. Those are like the trifecta, the family criminal <laughs> defense and immigration for, for us, you know. <laughs> right. And, and in different locations and different specialties within that that area of law. So because they're always asking for referrals um, and also you, you might have an issue that you like, just like this whole intersection that we just discussed. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it until our, our you know, prepare, preparing for today, but um, it is really important um, because I'm sort of in a vacuum a lot of times talking about marriage. Like I know the fastest you can get divorced is like 60 days. I know you have to wait 30 days to get remarried, you know, for here in Texas. Um, I know sometimes my clients are married to multiple people at the same time and they don't know it. You know, I've, I've had lots of crazy stories about that. Um, and sometimes my clients think if they get married in one country, the other country doesn't know, or it's not valid, or if they get divorced in one, it doesn't exist in the other. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> how they come up with this stuff, but. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's important to remember, you don't know what you don't know, but if you yeah. know someone who knows, then you can get your answer, right? That's right. <laughs> so where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Well, uh, I would say, you know, LinkedIn is a great one. Ruby Powers, uh, Twitter uh, website is great. Ruby Powers Law. And um, we're also on Facebook, Ruby Powers Law and Twitter, Ruby Powers Law. Um, so the law firm's Powers Law Group um, and, you know, finding me on one of these, you know, we can connect other ways. We give out a newsletter in English and Spanish every um, every other week. And we try to give the highlights of what's going on in immigration because it's so much has changed um, in the last six years or so. Um, so just, you could connect with me on LinkedIn or our website and get on the newsletter. And just a sidebar, um, I also have a business called um, Power Strategy Group uh, aligned with the book that I wrote about law practice management for AILA. Um, and we do uh, monthly webinars on different law practice management topics. And so people can find my Facebook group at Power Up Practice or Power Up My Practice. And um, and you can find out more at my website, rubypowers.com. So. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, take a second to leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. 
For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.